Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Unconventional Soldier a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. And our guest today is Nick Dunn, one of six former British servicemen who spent four years in prison in India for a crime they didn't commit. Each day they lived in appalling conditions with poor food and the ever-present threat of violence. They were providing security against Somali pilots for, their, for a merchant ship off the Indian coast in October 2013, when they were falsely accused of being illegally armed in Indian waters. Nick is also a published author, and his book Surviving Hell recounts his experience in prison in Chennai. So Nick, thanks for coming to the podcast, and can you start off by telling us when you joined the army, what made you enlist, and why you chose the Parachute Regiment? Thank you for having me on your show. Um, good questions to start off. When I was growing up, Obviously, in the time where kids used to play out and go down the woods, make camp, we used to play armies. I used to like watching the good old war films on Saturday and Sunday afternoons with my dad. Um, and I just kind of slowly, you know, put myself in that direction. Um, I wasn't really interested in school, even though I look back now, they are the best times of your life, uh, so that's the But yes, um, I, I thought to myself, I want a challenge, and I would rather join the elite British Army's regiment, which is the Parachute Regiment. I enlisted at 17, and I uh, went to Catrick a month after my 18th birthday, and it was tough. I was a skinny little short lad. Basically, I think I was like an easy target for the, the corporals and all that because they wanted to see if I could do it. It wasn't done in a bullying way. They want the best out of you. They want to break you down, get rid of that civilian side of you, 
and ability to be a parachute regiment soldier, and that takes a lot of grit, drive, hard work, and determination to turn yourself from a, a young adult to a fully fledged young professional soldier to then go on operations around the world. And it was tough, but it was an amazing experience. And in a blink of an eye, I'll do it all again. Did you have any family members like your dad or that in the Army or the Parachute Regiment? No, nothing at all. My granddad was RAF in the war, World uh, Second World War. Um, I've got two cousins who are in the military. So one or two relatives with military background, but I'm the only one that of the in the parachute regiment. And it was just a very proud moment of mine uh, marching off to ride of the Valkyries on the parade square at Catrick in front of my family. I was so overwhelmed. I felt like I, I did myself proud, but made them proud as well. So once you passed your basic training, you passed P Company and your jumps course, what battalion did you get sent to? I went to one para. I know, obviously, through what history, a lot of two and three paras being uh, with the better operations, etc. They were more heavily, obviously involved with the fault as well. One para were staggering on in Ireland. <laughs> I bet they were, I, they were pretty good at I've spoke to one or two people who were in Northern Ireland. Their, their kit was packed, but they never got the call. So there's still quite a bit of inter-battalion rivalry around the Falklands, it sounds like. it. Um, Not really. We're, they're there to do a, a job. We're all parachute airborne brothers. Uh, no one should be shooting daggers at each other. You know, it's just how a cookie crumbles. I was fortunate to be part of the special forces support groups or the operations that we went on two and three power old probably thinking I, w- I, w- I won't do that but military guys I don't we don't even really we share stories but the funny side is though we don't really sit down and ask like I've never really gone to my mates and gone oh tell us your stint in Afghan like I've, I've never you know because I think some people just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's a harrowing experience. The the main answer they probably could get is I'm glad I survived that. I think, as you say, talking to my friends, I had a podcast with a mate of mine we were talking about earlier, and we did Northern Ireland, and he came home, we discussed Northern Ireland, and it was the first time he talked about a contact he was involved in in, you know, 40-odd years, because mainly when we used to get together, we used to talk about the... the the piss takes and, and, and the not fun times, that'd be wrong to describe it, but the funny moments that you always get on operations. Oh, of course. That's just British military humour. So what operational tours did you deploy on and what was it like? Uh, Northern Ireland, my third tour. Not the best of weather. It never is over there. <laughs> I just thought it's an experience, but it, it was the last ever... Northern Ireland to our one para would do before transitioning into the support group role. 
and uh, went to Afghanistan a few years later. An eye-opening experience. The heat, the conditions, uh, the long drives. My first experience coming under motor fire, even though it was indirect, but like it kind of makes you think, wow, what's going on here? Being involved in a, a vehicle uh, explosion with drove, I was top gunner of a, a Wemmick light armoured uh, Land Rover. I was top gunner and uh, we, we got dicked, so I went to uh, investigate the people watching were went to their location, they were well gone. And then we kind of drove back in the same direction of travel, basically, as we, came, as we went out. There's just mines everywhere in Afghanistan. Still, and, the, and these are old legacy Soviet mines, aren't they, a lot of the time? Yeah, a lot of the time. And then we kind of went to park up near where other vehicles were, and then it just bumps like that. Yeah, the eyes are ringing. I've felt into the vehicle, dust cloud everywhere, and it just happens in a blink of an eye. And then I'm kind of coming to obviously check the, the crown jewels are still there. And like I remember trying to get out of the vehicle and the guys with the metal detectors were flying up with her and they were shouting, don't move. But it was like coming over, I was like, don't move. And, I was, and then I was kind of half in, half out, and I was starting getting the shaky leg. I was thinking, whoa, because obviously the adrenaline's starting to come away. And I was just thinking, right, I'll let him go around the vehicle. And he says, if we'd parked a little bit to the right and a little bit forward, there was a an anti-tank mine. And all three of us would have been mincemeat if we parked there, that's for sure. And did, all th- did all three vehicle occupants survive that? Yeah, explosion. we all survived uninjured as well. It was a, a pressure well, plate, and it literally shot up the engine block. This is the problem. It was new. There was still remains of the, the tape, uh, black, black electrical tape. It was a 105 round they used. I had a bit of the 105 shell, and the, t- took it off of because they wanted to do that test on it to see which organisation it came from. I'll tell you what, mate, you were lucky to walk away from a 105 round going off. I know. I think on, on that particular op, there was a lot of vehicles getting hit with mines. If Al-Qaeda and the Taliban stood toe-to-toe with ISAF soldiers, they would be wiped out. Simple as that. So they played the dirty game with IEDs. But you see that in every theatre. You see oh, it in Afghanistan, right? You saw it in Northern Ireland. It all starts off, they try out-shooting you. It will never work with professional soldiers. So it always falls back to that, the IEDs and, and all the rest of it. Um, and final tour, Iraq, working with Arafat. You did six years then, and um, obviously you're in a good job. You're in the Parachute Regiment. You're in Special Forces Support Group. What made you decide to go to leave the army then? I think with the whole maritime blowing up and a lot more CP was pushed, a lot of people were leaving. I just was swayed. I think we all like to experience different things in life, and I have done what I did in the army, crawled up, and then just see what came first and... uh, it was one of the lads who was in my company 
he was saying about maritime security and he pushed, pushed us in the right direction and I went and done my course and then I thought it was quite interesting. What were the deployments like then? I mean, what if you can just explain to listeners who might not know, you're obviously on ship protection, but what weapons did you have? How did it work? Well, weapons vary from shotguns to rifles. All weapons were single shot only. They were not uh, fully automatic weapons because fully automatic weapons are weapons of war. But they were in penny boxes. You'd pick them up from where your agent collects you and the armory, take them onto the vessel. Some some vessels are already clued up on that protective measures like with barbed wire, water cannons, stuff like that. All of our ships had absolutely nothing, so we used to implement and get the crew to build stuff and get the barbed wires, get the uh, citadel door reinforced, do practice drills. These vessels, you are very sturdy. So when these pirates try to attack you, they're all off their heads on cat. So they're off their tits trying to shoot you, bobbing around on a skiff. The real Captain Phillips gave an interview when we were held captive. He basically said, if we had armed security on my vessel, we wouldn't have been taken and hijacked. No armed guards has ever succumbed to armed pirates. Yeah, because it's interesting. I've, I don't know how accurate Captain Phillips' film is with Tom Hanks, but when you see that, they've got the water cannon, as you described, and the... The skiff trying to pull up alongside this massive ship to get ladders up on board. Yeah, uh, and the citadel you mentioned before—that's a secure area where the crew are meant to lock themselves into. Is that correct? They can control the vessel from that. They should have went straight down there. You're on this ship now, then, Nick, and you're doing all the operations. Just you know, you've you've done your training with the crew that you can do. Talk us through the events leading up to your arrest and the sentencing. How that happened. We had boarded a vessel from Muscat in the Oman and we were going to Sri Lanka. Our company, who I worked for, had holding platforms, little side ship, which you could say floating armory, floating hotel, where you, to save time going on land and pissing about with authorities, especially when you've got weapons, these vessels were legally allowed during the high-risk area to depart a secure room under lock and key from the tactical deployment officer and captain. Were, all the weapons would be stored in pelly boxes and ammunition next door. A couple of days into our transit, we were informed that we'll be disembarking that vessel and not going to Sri Lanka, but joining our company vessel, the Seaman Guard Ohio. We did that. We got on. And I remember speaking to me TL, I said, when was, how long were you last on this? He goes, oh, I was only on for a day. Like, all right, okay. A couple of days, and then obviously we needed fuel and provisions, so we stopped operations. All the weapons locked away, and I was just bobbing around in the ocean, fishing, sunbathing. It was the 11th of October. There was a, a cyclone uh, nearby. Uh, so we had to obviously come closer to uh, the next neighbouring country because under maritime law, one of those circumstances, you can seek refuge. And we kind of were close, but the waves were pretty choppy. So when they were transferring the fuel from one vessel to the other, I said to the tactical deployment officer, I said, this is going to take forever, I'm going to be. We'll get rudely awakened 
by the TDO and it basically says, just to let you know, there's a Coast Guard armed on the bridge. And this and, was an Indian Coast Guard, I take it? Yes, Indian Coast Guard. And they are telling us to head toward the port of Tudakurin. They were escorting us. And I, asked, I said to the TDO, I said, how far are we away? And he told us. I said, that should only take like an hour and a half really to get the thought. He goes, I'd. So why are we going so slow then? He goes, I have no idea. Because the guy on the bridge wouldn't speak. Whether he could speak English, but he just was not interested. Just stood down on the bridge. But you starting to get uneasy at this point, thinking there's something going down here? No. I just thought, yeah, about this all the time. Mm. You know, so we're all accredited. Nothing's illegal. Why should you worry? Yeah, because you had all the correct paperwork, didn't you, for all the weapons and everything? For certain weapons, you've got one country, another country, and the UK. So as we were coming into port, there was a massive welcome committee. At first, we just thought it was just port staff, you know, being nosy. On closer inspection, there was loads of police. There was media there, and we're just chugging along to come to Earth. And you're like, what in the Earth is going on? This doesn't look right. I must have counted easy a minimum of 50 people mm. on that port side. And it was like, once the the bridge went down, it was like a gang for all. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, do, you can't just rush on this vessel. Who, who are you? And when you say some identification, well, police being police, they're just, you know. So we're like, hang on a minute. We need some sort of orderly fashion going on here. The captain just locked himself in the his cabin, not speaking. If the captain didn't scream and shout at the police and lock himself in, in his cabin, would that have changed things? No. I can say that now because I, I've lived through it, I've experienced it, and I've looked, I can look back and say, doesn't, nothing was ever going to change that. This was happening for a reason. And there was a rumour that the second officer hadn't been paid. From sitting in this position now, I'm probably 100% nearly sure this is all the agents sold down the river. One of the two. Who, how did they know where we were? This is the big question. Mm-hmm. When we were in a court and we had the map and we were saying, show us on the map where we were, they couldn't. So someone's told the Coast Guard where the hell we were. Were you actually in Indian waters that time, or were you in international waters? We were in Indian waters by maritime law because of the cyclone that was nearby. We didn't need to say we were in Indian waters. They had to prove, and they couldn't. (laughs) But we were. I think we were like 10.3 nautical miles away. From that mainland to 12 nautical miles, that is territorial water. So we came in because of the risk of a cyclone under maritime law to seek refuge in the neighbouring country, which was India. So when they came on, Nick, and they're starting to get you know organised, the captain's gone into his cabin, did they start asking for weapon permits and 
weapon locations and the weapons quite quickly. Is that what they're focusing on? There was different police organisations as far as Mumbai. So you're trying to tell me in the space of a couple hours, they've been notified and they've got, got on that little private jet and flew from Mumbai to Tutakuri mm. to get to where we were in Tutakurin. Oh, not a chance. This was a seizure exercise. Companies were coming on, different organisations. We were, look, come show the weapons because we are maritime security. These are our weapons. They are locked away in penny boxes. There's 35 weapons. Every company was going, there's nothing to be had here, and they were leaving. A couple of days into it, the local, I think it was day four, the local uh, branch, two branch, basically were looking like a bunch of fools, and they took blab to the media. We found weapons, blah blah right? Two big lorry, uh, four by fours turned up. About 30 soldiers jumped off. But it was like, oh, we're, we're removing the weapon. We had to stay on that vessel. Food was running low. Water was running low. We weren't allowed to go off because we haven't got a permit. Was your company doing anything to help at this point, Nick? No. We did mention it to the embassy, obviously. Embassy couldn't get access, apparently, to the port to see with. No company representative apart from the agent who came on, but there was someone else from the company, but apparently he got a hot collar because they were thinking, well, we'll take, because he represents the company, we'll arrest him too, and he pissed off. We're practically left on our own. I think this is an important point for any soldiers thinking about getting into the sort of the close protection world abroad. I mean, when you leave the military, you don't think about digging deep into your contract, really. I I, I, I did a bit of contract when I left, and I only found out by accident a number of things. Like, when my company was providing aerospace platforms to the army in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was going through the paperwork, and uh, we were lucky. We had a very good company lawyer and company contract, and I didn't realise that, you know, he, they made sure that in Afghanistan and Iraq, we came under what's called the Status of Forces Agreement, SOFA, which meant that we couldn't come under local law enforcement in Iraq and Afghanistan if anything went wrong. And, you know, all British military in Afghanistan and Iraq are, are subject to that SOFA as well. So, And also that we were entitled to be medevaced into British military hospitals in Afghanistan and go through the medevac chain back to the UK. But I only found that out by accident. I would never have thought of asking it. So I think if any soldiers, former soldiers, think they get into this sort of business abroad, really delve deep into your contract, would you agree? Definitely. The, the pirates aren't going to take you hostage. We'll be killed. And that's it. doesn't stay if you get kidnapped by an allied country. It doesn't mention that because that yeah. doesn't happen. So, well, like I say, we're in port and they got to day six in, early in the morning. At the time, we are four and a half hours ahead, the morning of the 18th of October 2013, the TDO has been informed by Madame Q-Branch. Is Q-Branch like a part of the police force, is it? Yeah, anti-terrorist squad or something like that. Right. 18th of October, early hours, we get told we're going to hospital. So it was a strange hospital because uh, guys who needed reading glasses couldn't take them couldn't take their belts, couldn't take their mobile phones, couldn't take their wallets, couldn't take their watches. TGO says, look, time to buckle up, shit's hitting the fan. I suggest you just uh, 
Star ring their family and give them a heads up. Minus four and a half hours, it's the early hours in the UK. People are asleep. I've been in communications with my family because there was a, a media interest that grabbed the families and it was like we were selling weapons to fishermen, to terrorists and we're going to do a Mumbai-style attack on the nuclear power plant. And I remember my dad asking us and pulling us on that, saying, are you involved in that? I went, absolutely not. And he was like, right, okay, I believe you, but this is what we're reading here so you can understand how upset we are and that's the reason why we want to hear it from yourself. So I made the phone call to my sister. She never answered. Funny enough, it's staffed o'clock in the morning. I rang my mum. My mum was in and out of sleep. So she was kind of groggy. Don't think she really understood what I said. But I basically rung my mum, and it's the last time I've ever been able to speak to my mum properly before she had a double aneurysm. And I just said, look, I love you. I don't know when you'll next be able to speak to us or see us, but don't worry. Uh, I'll stay strong as best I can, and I love you very much. So I answered the phone call to my sister. She says, what's the matter? I said, Lisa, shit's at the fan. Get the embassy now. We're getting arrested and taken off this vessel now. She went, what? What? I went, now. I love you. I'll see you soon. Goodbye. And then that was it. Onto the buses. 35 of Two buses. And there was two police officers per person. So you can imagine how the buses were. And they've got weapons. You don't know what state these weapons are. And the rifles are flying all over. And I'm like, get that out of my face. We weren't handcuffed. And me just flying by with our cameras. The sirens are going. It was pandemonium. It was like, what in the earth is going on? Something that you would say in a film. We got to the police station and it was just sign this, sign this, sign this and like don't even know what it is. No English, no why they use one of the Indian crew members who could speak Tamil so and he could speak English. So we had to kind of speak to him in English. He then had to translate. No one from our embassy, there was no one from the company. We were given a bottle of water, we didn't get fed, we were there all day and then we went to a call, a guy came out Back onto the bus, then up to prison we go. The first prison, which was stayed for a couple of days, we got there for about 11, half 11 at night. Uh, Mozzies were going absolutely bizarre, stifling, it was humid as hell. And the prison was built under British rule. And when they found out there were six British coming to that prison, they were practically denied on handstands, cartwheels, you name it. And if we went through these gates, man, I was just thinking, what on earth is going on here? Like, because it was night time, you couldn't really see your surroundings. Given her two bed sheets, a cup, metal mug, and a metal dog bowl plate. And then off we pop to this, like, outhouse. And we're all slammed in there, hole in the floor of the toilet. Bit of, like, a little water fountain trough thing to wash in. And people were just in a such of a state. People were just thinking... What on earth's going on here? In the uh, army, when you do sort of survival training, combat survival training and conduct after capture training, they talk about the shock of capture. Did you ever experience anything like that, shock of capture? I just was kind of pondering my thoughts, just thinking. I, I wasn't like, I wouldn't say it's shock. I was more mm. concerned about my family than me. How was my family taking it? 
And with all the new British guys still together at this point, did they keep you together? We were all together. All 35 of us. A couple of days went by, and then they got the bus. We went up to Chennai, bar a few who went off to interrogation. I, one of the British guys, went off to interrogation to an undisclosed place. But we went from to the terrain up to Chennai, 14 hours, and it was like hell. Bus, Indians falling asleep with a rifle. You don't know what weapon state it is. They were driving, and I'm thinking, I'm not even going to make it to this prison. We're going to fall off the road into a ditch, and some rifle's going to go off. We're all cramped, and you just haven't slept for a few days, probably, and you're not getting, you've not had really en- enough food. At this point, you're not bothered about yourself. You know you can deal with it from your time in the military. I'm so fortunate I have my military training because if you were in this situation, and you're not military trained, you will handle this in a different light. When the shit hits the fan when you're a military, you you go into a a sense of alertness. You you're thinking, right, you know, let's deal with things, you know, fight or flight kind of mode. Um And going back to what we talked about earlier, you've had that rough treatment off during your training and been shouted at and been, you know, moved around so You've already beaten, not through the exact experience you go through now, but you've been mentally toughened up a bit, haven't you? Yes. But crawling through ditches to get to a firing position or to tab up a mountain to keep with a pack, and yes, it is mental, but it's physical robustness. You train the mind to tell the body to stop feeling pain so you can go that extra mile. When you're involved in something that's just mental, who tells the brain? And this is what I keep saying. I, I don't try and use these big terminology words and like these gurus do when they talk about mental health. I keep it simple, stupid, and I tell them, this is how I affect. It was affected. This is how I dealt with it. Do you have any experience? Do you share the same experience? Obviously, only certain people share the same experience as me, but... Trauma's trauma, and it comes in different uh, ways and light. All right, in saying that, even the military did help you to a degree, but the extenuating circumstances that you're in did leave a lot that you couldn't cope with. Oh, the military has you at a, a level, right? I forgot how many mental brick walls over the space of four years I had to go through. The amount of times I wrote in letters, looked at my sister whilst in in the jailer's office when she came to visit me and say, I can't do this. This is beyond me. And it got to the point where people from around the world were writing to it. And you've got to go past that mental boundary. You've got to go, right, no one's going to get me out of this by myself. I can't be dragged by others. I have to drag myself, but others need to chuck that two pence in. They need to support me because this is something I've never experienced and not a lot of people have experienced. To have your freedom stripped from you and people dictating your life. How do you do that? How do you cope? It's tough. But having that military background helps immensely. I was able to think a little bit, but that wears off. 
when you're in prison life, that's and then going out of prison to being trying to integrate back into a normal life because I can't just jump on a plane and go home. I'm like under country arrest, so to speak, even though I had no charges. And then you get told you're going back into prison again. How do you do that? How do you mentally prepare yourself? You can't. You've just got to take each day as it comes and take whatever happens on the chain. So how long were you in this prison before you were taken to court and sentenced? Well, we did a couple of days at Pelham County Prison. Then we moved up to Chennai Central Prison, where we did nearly six months there. We got granted bail. A couple of months later, we had charges quashed. I was a free man. And this is the only time I will ever say to the British government, you failed then. When we had a meeting in the British Embassy, we had no charges, and we said, under maritime law, state had let us from our lawyers state Indian law and maritime law. We could go home during that 90-day period where the police had to appeal. If they didn't appeal, come day 90, that's it, we go home. But during them time, them days, you don't need to remain in India. But our government never, they never pursued it because they said to us, we do not believe they'll appeal. I said, well, you've not been dealing with them. We have. And they are very unpredictable. This wasn't just your generic court case. This was an international incident. Amnesty International told my sister, what country is your brother in? They turned around when she said India and they went, oh, but don't touch them. And that's Amnesty International. So during this limbo period, not limbo period, but this period where you're on a certain amount of days to appeal, were your passports taken off you and you couldn't leave yeah. the country? Yeah, but the British government can issue a new... Up- yeah. I got a passport when I was there, out there, but I d- they only gave us it once my passport expired. But they could have given you a travel warrant. Yeah, and just got you out of the country. They could have got me out of the country under diplomatic ways, but they didn't. And all would have been forgotten. Because the British government, if India turned around and said, well, well, we're taking this to trial, we want Mr. Dunn and the rest to come back to India for trial, the British government would say, well, they've got no charges, mate. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But what was happening and ongoing while we were in India? Trade deals where Narendra Modi went over to entertain the London Stadium or Wembley or Hyde Park. Our blossoming relationship, you recall, I recall him saying, I'm thinking, I don't follow this blossoming relationship to, to the southeast of your country. The 90 days were getting ready. People were getting a little bit excited, packing their 
whatever belongings I had, and you can imagine the family. And then we get a notice of one lawyer on day 88 that put paperwork into the Supreme Court. And you're like, because it's coming from a police government organisation, the court has to hear it. If it was someone else, they would just go, nah, not enough evidence on the table to pursue this because it was done by the police. And there was a lot of murkiness. Basically, they were police officers in an investigation and they were making it up. Basically, they were making a mountain out of a molehill. Did you have an Indian lawyer at this point? I have an Indian lawyer Mm. and she was the best money could buy in maritime because it was a maritime case. I would have loved it if they just went all weapons, but they didn't. They chose six weapons, which were the J3s, because they still had the switch to go from single shot to fully automatic. Mm-hmm. However, they had parts removed. If you're going to test a weapon for fully automatic, what do you do? You put two to three rounds in, cock it, switch it to fully automatic and hold the trigger down. And if mm. two or three rounds are expelled, cotton handles it to the rear, that's it. It's fully automatic. Put one round through the chamber and went, yeah, illegal weapons. And that was oh, basically, it was, was that the charge that sunk you then, the whole weapon issue? They said, they, them weapons don't count for shit outside the UK. I said, that don't for international purposes only. They didn't care. So you were thinking, it didn't matter how much you spoke to them and tried to make them understand that it was going in one year and out the other. Day 88, it just brought our morale down. I can't imagine how the families at home were feeling. Was this, like, your, was this your sentencing day, was it, day 88? Day 88. But then, after that, you know, we had a wait trial. So, the trial from July, had three months, so around December, January, we had filled the paperwork in, which the police were harassing with, and then that was to take it to high, uh, the Supreme Court, and then you got to wait to be heard. That didn't happen till September. The court was back in Tudikurin, so I was travelling every time to go to court. Some of the people stayed down there. Well, were you uh, on bail at this time and not in prison? We weren't in prison. We were out. No charges, but we had to accept charges against her. If any trial, you've got to be under charge again. So it was horrible, travelling down on a bus every so often from Chennai. And I told my lawyer, unless the judge physically needs me, I am not coming to court. I'm not listening to utter lies again, where our legal team were cross-referencing the original statements and the collector of evidence. Basically, perjury was performed. If I had seen the ballistic expert's report, I wouldn't have put the charges on the men. But you put the charges on the men before you saw it, didn't you? Yes. That, in a nutshell, game over. That's is, that, it. is that what sunk you, that, that yeah. point? That was, in, in a UK law, if he'd be done for perjury, court would have been over. He's just stood there in a court of law and said, if I'd seen the ballistic expert's report, I wouldn't have put the charges on the men. I said to the, my legal team, I said to my lawyer, I'm not coming back here unless the judge wants me. So I just kind of cracked on as best I can. We did the trial. We're down there at the end and there was the two-week recess over the Christmas period where League was speaking with our legal team and thanked them for everything they'd done and they said, we've covered everything. We've turned every 
stone. So over Christmas, you're trying not to ponder. I said, it's Christmas, so obviously I'm trying to just think, hopefully this is my last Christmas and New Year in India. And then 11th of January came, Judgment Day. We always named it Judgment Day when it was like a decision at the court. Did I think we're going to get sentenced? Yes. Did I think I was going to go home? Yes. Is this what your lawyers had said as well to expect? They just said, we hope it's a good result. Right. We've done everything we can. It's in it's out the lawyer. Uh, the judge, though, hopefully he's seen sense and ends this nightmare. I've stood and I'm standing next, next to one of the Estonians and I noticed in the corner of my eye loads of police were turning up and I was thinking, something's not right here. He went, what do you mean? I went, look outside. There for something in case something kicks off. And then he stood up, shouted something in Tamil. One of our embassy staff knew what he said, and she was straight on the dog and bone. She was straight on the phone to New Delhi. And we're like to the lawyers, go ahead, tell us, come on. And I tell you what, and I, I mentioned this in the book, and I've mentioned it because I've, I'll tell you what, I've seen some scared faces, especially when you've been on operation. But I've never seen a man, a grown man, look so scared to 35 men. You could literally hear him swallow for what he was about to tell us. And we're like, come on, what's he said? Five years. Five years what? Yeah, you've been sentenced to five years. And it just sits in your stomach for a little bit. And then it falls. You get the gut feeling. You don't want to be sick, but you feel sick. And it feels like your heart's been ripped out your chest. I didn't care for me anymore. I cared more about my family. And then obviously the commotion was happening. And we're kind of all waiting just outside the court. Uh, the media started trying to ring us. I said, look, it's not good news. Please speak to me, sister. It wasn't, oh, you're getting sentenced. Go get your stuff and there you go. It was court. Straight to court. It was straight to prison, sorry. Yeah, so they were kind of finding out whether to take it straight up to Chennai or to Palm Courty for the night and then up to Chennai the next morning. So there was a lot of waiting round. And then you've got to make the phone call. So I rung my dad. I said, Dad, that's not good news. He went, what do you mean? I said, uh, I'm going to prison for five years. He went, you what? Obviously, a few flowery words followed that. He says, but the weapons are fine. I said, Dad, I know. It doesn't matter. Not here. I had a partner over there. Massive, great help with communications. I rung her and I said, look, it's not going well. Obviously, she started crying on the phone. I said, can you do me one favour, please? Can you go to the hospital and bag me stuff up and take it to the embassy? I'm going to prison for five years. I don't expect you to wait for us. Just do this last favour. And... Uh, Get on with your life, please. Obviously, she never did that. She mm. was uh, waiting outside the prison the next day, trying to get in. That was January. She didn't get in to see us until my sister came in March for my birthday. The media ringers again, I'm saying, because different media were trying to find out what's going on. The media was outside the court. We did speak to them before we boarded the buses, where I publicly pleaded with David Cameron to start negotiations and bring us home. 
you're, you've gone through all that mental trauma there, Nick, and you're not even at the prison yet. What were conditions like in the prison when you got there? Squalor. Slaves floor, hole in the floor, buckets to wash up, closing, to shower with. Um, we did get creature comforts. We had a uh, great charity called uh, UK Prisoners Abroad. And they, every so many months, would put money in our prison account. Obviously, family would put prisoner. The British Legion and the Mission to Seafarers financially helped our family, our British families, from time to time, because we were not earning. The company just left one more off. And they weren't paying you at this point? No. And I'm still owed six-figure sum in wages, which I'll never get back. Compensation. Offered with ten pound. Was this money you were getting for these charges? Was that paying for your food? Yeah, we got given the option. Do you want to eat prison food, which would be rice and dal three times a day? Mind for that, them two years out of the five year sentence that we were in prison before we won our appeal. I saw the food that the prisoners were getting deteriorate. I said to the lads, "I'm glad we're only living on one meal a day." And eating biscuits and that, because if we lived on that, we'd be dead. We wouldn't be walking out of this prison. We'd be getting carted out on a trolley. You know, we all lost weight. But with this prison compared to the first one where we were, like, ill kind of thing, it was tough, but we got a lot of creature comforts as well. Like, the embassy spoke with the prison, director of prisons to get with little thin mattresses so we weren't lying. We were able to get chicken, little pieces of chicken, and set it on Sunday, like the traditional prison way. We were getting it every day because Westerners need a protein source. Mm. Indians are not really fussed. They love a vegetarian. They don't, they don't really eat as much food, uh, meat. And I had a good, an ex para colleague sending me a food parcel every month, which was a massive help. Then we had other people sending parcels from around the world. I had people from America, Canada, Australia, France, other places in the UK, writing to me personally, keeping my spirits up in prison. And I'll never forget this. It was the the second year we were in prison, the the lad who I was in one para with. I didn't receive a food parcel, and uh, I received a letter, and he was saying, oh, sorry, I've not been in touch, but don't worry, I've sent you something. And I got this letter, and it was quite hard, and I was thinking, Maybe it's a late birthday card. And it was a wedding invitation. And it really is hard. I was crying. Did that give you something to aim for, though? It did. Yeah. It did. But that, that last year, I was running on food. My sister only came on my birthday, which is on March 1st, because she wanted to make it special. For the three birthdays and Christmases and that, I was in prison. That's when I saw my sister. And... I was running low. We did our appeal, and the judge wouldn't give a decision. One year with no decision. The the captain was dying of cancer. He was like a walking skeleton with skin on him. Our appeal was stuck at the high court, so our lawyers went, we're going to send a red heron because we're going to give this man the chance to die in a private hospital and have his family from Ukraine come over. I will be still alive. He wasn't that much of a bad guy. He was our ticket. 
And it shouldn't have come down to a man to nearly dying for my freedom. The government didn't get my freedom. Okay, you can say the legal team, they did the brunt of it. Ultimately, came to him nearly dying for the Supreme Court, just Chief Justice, the top judge in all of India. His court case for him to get out went from the small court, the high court, to Supreme Court. And grandest judge of all of India heard his case and went, why are you still in my country for? And he's gone, I want a decision within two weeks. Two weeks. The spirit in the camp. It was on like Donkey Kong, we used to say. Two weeks. I remember on a Sunday night, the Chennai FM radio station was playing rock ballads. And I've always said that I always liked the song anyways, but it means so much to me more so now. It was the final countdown by Europe. And I'm sat, everyone's sat reading a book or whatever they're doing. I think I was uh, returning uh, mail. I still wanted, I didn't want to just go, right, that tomorrow comes, that's it. I still was in my routine because we've been down this road before. Even though some think inside was saying, top judge is saying, I want a decision. He's practically saying, get them out of this country now. But when that song came on, the final countdown, that was it. I stood up in the cell and went, that's it, lad. It's all about the morrow. But well, I, you actually, at that point, you thought you were getting released tomorrow. You wouldn't have to wait the two weeks. No, no. The, the two weeks, of that from the judge saying two weeks, it was to that point. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Monday. Yeah. And Sunday, that Sunday night, I was like, that's it. It's all about the morrow. So as you can imagine... None of us slept that night, so night as we're going, biddies were getting smoked. One of our hot water was left from the evening, uh, in what flasks were making brews in the dark, um, and just chatting, trying to tie ourselves out. It was horrible, and so, like normally it was between six six thirty, they would unlock the cell. Honestly, that as soon as I heard them keys, I was practically riving the guard out the way because I wanted to tying myself out. So we made it, well, obviously, around the back of our cell, we're under the mango tree, we made like a little Flintstone gym, which you can see on my social media, there's pictures of that fed gym. And uh, I was, you know, trying to tie myself out, going for a, a run, just cracking on. People were like headless chickens. Don't blame them. Everyone reacts and handles situations in different ways. It got to around tea time. That's where we would normally have our food. So two guys where I'd like two kind of cooking teams. I was part of the second cooking team, which we would we would cook on a Wednesday and Sunday and the other guys do the other days. And it was their day would be a Monday. It got around tea time. I was in the gym. I remember one of the lads coming to the cell window and when you hear someone the the mixed emotions and the and you were like, Donny, 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 and I wait. And they went, it's over, case acquitted. And I went, see, I told you, I told everything. <laughs> and I was like, inside, like an explosion. And I thought, right, let's crack on finishing my routine. So I, I walked around, all hell was going off, seeing jubilant faces, seeing nearly tears in men's eyes. 
that they're going to be out of this hellhole and finally reunited with their families. It's a magical moment, but it wasn't over yet because I had it in my head. It's not over till I touch down in Newcastle Airport, even when I was in Dubai for six hours. I never thought it was over. So you can imagine, no one slept that night. That was it. Cell opened again. Get out. I was training to tie myself out. And then obviously between one set, I would walk around the compound. And I walked around and I saw the TDO. I went, what's up? He goes, oh, I've been summoned to the superintendent. I went, all right, okay. And then obviously went around, cracked on. And I've come around again. And I've collared him again. I went, Paul, what's the crack? He goes, embassy's coming at 11. Get your bags packed. And I stopped abruptly. And I felt like someone had just wellied us in the stomach. I felt ill, but in a good way. I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like for you, uh, living in those conditions. Was there much threat of violence the whole time you were there? Did you have to, were you always on the alert? I kicked off in the uh, hospital and got put into lockdown. So I was kind of uh, not very fought upon for a few months. But that's what happens. The emotions get the bearing in, you know what I mean? Yeah. In one hospital, a guy had his throat slitting and clarets going over uh, everywhere and screaming and the, the guards did nothing. We saw a dead body on a gurney with a sheet over him down the main entrance. We saw Indians getting buried up by the latty sticks. On the last day of my sister visiting, I said to my sister, don't look, what if she do? She looks. So when she leaves prison to go back to the UK, she's thinking, is that happening to my brother? So I had to bloody tell the embassy when they went and saying, nothing's happening to me, don't worry. I was just training everyone in the cell there, running around like headless chickens, packing whatever stuff. So I thought I would just compose myself, and I, and I saw everyone just flitting about, and I thought to myself, this is real. They ain't going to joke and say the embassy's going to be here and they're not going to turn up. And uh, I was one of the last to turn up down at the main entrance uh, after I sorted myself out. They always say, right, what clothes am I going to wear? So I had my T-shirt. I, I had my hair long. I didn't really have much facial hair, so I just shaved it off anyways. Just so I was a little bit neater, you know, even though my hair was all over the shop. And I went down there, and there was just bustling of people. The director of prisons was there, the superintendent, the, the standing superintendent, because the original superintendent, she was just not long had twins. She came in, because she was a trained lawyer. And she even, when we showed her the... the Document. She even looked at them. Were why you in my prison for? Did the staff there treat you quite well, or did you yeah, just get? They did. They were a bit annoying at times, but I learned how to deal with them. If you go screaming and shouting like a bull in a china shop, they'll just do what an ostrich does. You go and speak to them like an adult. Sometimes you might have to speak to them like a child in a play way. You got that language barrier, not mm. understanding. They didn't want us in that prison as much as we didn't want to be there. They knew we shouldn't have been there, but they yeah. had to do what they had to do. So 
and they'd have been worried something bad was going to happen to you, which would make them look bad, no doubt, too. There's all that because you well, know, that's why we were put under lockdown because the superintendent, before she left, feared about the gangs ganging up on her. And I was like, Have you seen who have you seen the Russian Estonians that chuck Indians all over the shop? But there was gang members in there who killed opposition party members so one party could win victories. They, mm. that, that, that's what India's like. And you got rapists. The guy who was the postie, multiple uh, rape and murder, chopped women up. And he was the one bringing me letters. And when I got back home, he, he looked at the book, he wrote a letter to us. When I walked down there and I saw the embassy girls, the deputy high commissioner, the high commissioner there, a normal British prisoner does not see them. You see your embassy staff once every three months. So the British government knew we were not guilty. But when we wanted them to do what they wanted to do back in July 2014, they didn't. And that's the only time I will ever see in my British government failed me. Mm. Other than that, they had, I understand they had pressing matters. They were going through the, the trade deals. They were going through the Brexit. When you got back to the UK, how long was it before you wrote your book? And did you find that the, the process helped? Well, a few people were asking us when I was in prison, are you writing your memoirs down? I said, they're all in my head. And when I came back to the UK and people recognised us and stopped us in the street, which wasn't too difficult, I hadn't had my hair cut uh, straight away and I was walking around like a lost part. And people were saying, oh, welcome home and all that. Oh, you should write a book or it should be a film or some documentary or whatever. Uh, fingers crossed, the latter. To, I think it took nearly a year. We, we inquired, me and my sister, we thought, we've got nothing, nothing to lose. Why not? And it's not easy. We finally got the people involved. They came up to see me and my sister in Newcastle. We had food and drinks and talk business. And they were really interested. And then they went, right, we're happy. Let's get the show on the road. And this was the first ever time where I've had to sit down and reflect everything. It was difficult. It was emotional. It was funny. Talking about the fun, fun stuff. Because military guys, we always laugh in the face of adversity. We always mm -hmm. take the piss and we always, you know, it doesn't matter how bad life throws at you, we always try and make uh, things better. Like, it was definitely cathartic. It was a sense of I've achieved something. And hopefully, my coping mechanisms, how I dealt with things that don't give in attitude, but please accept the help when it's available. I, people's support that they showed me. You're not alone. And it's okay to admit that you might need help. And I hope that could potentially help someone in their struggles. But yeah, it was quite good to just basically tell the the good, the bad and the ugly and to get a little bit of a backstory of myself and the beauty of my book, it chucks you straight in the deep end to get the readers interested 
to why they've been arrested, why they've gone to prison, and then goes through that. And then you've got my sister chucking her. So you're getting two stories of the same same uh, scenario, but like from different aspects, my version and my sister's version of what she was doing, the raising awareness and talking about what I've told her and how they took it, or I'm getting arrested and we you know, all that. I imagine they'd have kept quite a few things from you that they were going through at the time. Oh, the, I remember, like, before Christmas, everyone was getting mail. And one month, I wasn't getting nothing. And I broke down in the cell. It's because my mum's gone into hospital. And the embassy came. And they saw my face. And they went, oh, Nick, can you, at the end of the meeting, can you stay behind? Well, I remember previously... They said that to one of the guys, and he was he came back and said, "Oh, I've got my family coming to see us." Mm-hmm. So they've told me, and I, I'm buzzing, I'm buzzing. I'm thinking, "Oh, I've got my family coming to see us before Christmas," you know. And then the embassy last looked at us, and she just went, "I'm sorry, Nick. Can you read this letter?" And it felt like my whole world had ended. Like trying to read this letter, were my eyes filling up? My sister saying she's stable, and we in the military have got this red mist. And in that prison, from the jailer's office to our compound, was one mile, give or take, nearly a mile walk. And I've got to do this walk, and I'm walking, and I'm walking in tunnel vision. My head's down, and I'm just shuffling me flip flops, and I've got stones piled in us, verbal abuse, racial slurs, and that pain was nothing. And I'm trying to battle my red mist from consuming me because then I would just unleash hell because of what I've just been told. And to have so much control over your feelings, to not do that is so hard. Mm-hmm. That red mist is in my Pandora spot, locked away. How I've man- managed to keep that locked away for them four years is beyond me. But yes, my family did keep a lot from me. Me and my sister... Since I've been home, we've never, and I don't think we ever will, sit down and talk about it. Because I think some things in life are just best not said. You know, we've both went through a horrible ordeal. Um, and yes, it was a horrible situation, but we've got to be thankful while mum is still alive. Well, Nick, thanks for your honesty during this podcast. And I know parts of it haven't been easy, but I, I really appreciate your honesty in describing what you went through. Where can listeners get a copy of the book? Amazon is the best place to get it on Kindle version, hardback or paperback. Unfortunately, there's no audio book. And that is something I am trying to pursue and get done. Because, like I say, there's many people who prefer to listen than read. And there's people who, especially this day and age, who are partially sighted. Or Mm. those who, you know, are dyslexic. They like to listen to it. Uh, that is something I would really try and love to get done. And there's there's other bookstores like Waterstones. I think they still do my book. But Amazon, that is the the main place to get. And sometimes when I have copies, I can do personal signature, find copies for them. And what we'll do, Nick, is I'll put up your social media links and all the rest of it. Yeah, and people yeah, people would message you directly if they wanted a signed copy. And, oh, uh, yeah. People can message me. I'll always reply to messages if it's in uh, whether the 
listen to a podcast, listen to this podcast, or just generally interested in anything they want to ask. I am I'm very honest with that. Well, that's great, mate. And we're going to finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. And actually, out of all my guests so far, if MD's been on a desert island, it's you with your um, imprisonment. What have you picked for your choices? I can't put down a title of a book, but I read quite a lot of the Jack Reacher novels that Lee Child does. I really liked reading them, and that was the last book I was reading, which I didn't finish before leaving prison. Film, I'm going to give this to me, me partner. She mentioned it, and when I thought of it, I had to laugh in agreement. Tom Hanks is full of where he's stuck on the desert island. <laughs> Castaway. Castaway. Because <laughs> I uh, looked at it like that when I came out of prison. Uh, good old knife. You need a good knife in a survival because uh, it has many uses. Well, that's great, mate. So uh, all, all sensible choices. And do you think you'll go back and finish that Lee Child book? I don't know. I'll probably have to read it all again because hmm. I've probably forgotten where I'm up to. But I think if I started reading it again, it might have some, I wouldn't say negative feeling, but... Might bring back some memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My choice this week is Born on the Fourth of July by Ron Kovich, and uh, Born on the Fourth of July film with Tom Cruise was on a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't seen it for about 30 years, and uh, inspired me to go, and I got Ron Kovich's book on Audible. And actually, it was, you know, the way veterans are treated it never changes when... Ron Kovic is describing when he was in the Veterans Hospital in Brooklyn. There were rats running around. Oh, we had rats. didn't read about that in my book. You could uh, associate with what Ron Kovic was going through, he, he, but he didn't even have to go to India, mate. He was getting this in a blooming Veterans Hospital. There were even veterans from the First World War there. But, you, you know, fast forward to veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq, still having to fight for proper treatment. Ridiculous. Like, all these charities had government funding, but ran by military personnel, veterans would be well looked after. No veteran of the United Kingdom should be living on our street. Without a shot, they gave up their freedom, their life to protect and serve our nation. It's something little of giving them housing, a stepping stone to get back on their feet. That is nothing compared to what they sacrificed and gave up. Totally agree, mate. And when you, when you listen to Born on the Fourth of July from a Vietnam veteran to the present day, nothing's changed. And oh, uh, well, Vietnam, 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 they were always given in a, a horrible light because that was a war even the American people did not want the US to be a part of. So I can understand why their veterans were treating that light. And the way the American... People look upon their veterans and military people personnel today while it's wild. Yeah, and I think only the people in the UK were as welcoming as that. Still great support, but not enough. Totally agree, mate. But I think, unfortunately for the Americans, they had to go through the appalling treatment of the Vietnam veterans in order to get to where they are today. But the more things change, the more the things remain the same. So that's it. Something good without something bad happening. No, absolutely, mate. That's it for another episode. So, Nick, cheers, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And thanks to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. And I'll also put in links to Nick's social media as well. You can find us in all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. 
And if you download some iTunes, like the podcast, it'd be great if you leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Bureau for his continued support, sponsorship to the series, and offering technical help through his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.